VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, November the 15th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So I said when I spoke with Dr. Janine Hubbard one day last week about the impact on some people with daylight savings time. And I said to her at that time, it doesn't really get to me. This year's somewhat different. The body's having a hard time adjusting. I ducked into an appointment yesterday at about quarter to four. Came out just after 4.30 to find it pitch black. And it just struck me like, ugh. Now, as a morning person, I get up really early in the morning. I do appreciate the brighter morning with the daylight savings time. But that dark at 4.30 is for the birds. So this year, it's kind of getting to me. I mean, Saskatchewan, they uh, use central time year-round. In the Yukon, they use uh, central time year-round. I think it's time to kind of get rid of daylight savings time the way it's impacting me this year. But anyway, you want to talk about it. Let's go. All right, congratulations to all of the recipients of the 18th Annual Premier's Athletic Awards. Young Jackie Daly won a couple back in the day. So over 125 of the province's athletes were indeed awarded between $500 and $1,500 to help deal with their training costs. The big awards come with the Team Guju Awards. So that, of course, honors the 2006 gold medal at the Touring Olympics, $5,000 to two athletes who excel in both academics and athletics. This year's recipients, Jada Lee, of course. Jada Lee of St. John's, she received the award based on her dominance in baseball. Of course, the first female to participate on the men's team, the boys' team, the Canada Games, as a baseball player. And then on the other side, Liam Drover Matten of Portugal Cove St. Phillips. He won the award for his prowess in tennis. He finished second at an International Tennis Federation event in Montreal, knocking off the top ranked player in Canada in the process. Congratulations to all the recipients, and certainly to Jada and to Liam. Good stuff. All right, this is a little bit out of, out of nowhere, but the League of Nations, of course, established, or the driving force behind it, was President, American President Woodrow Wilson. He also actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for his role as the architect. It came as a result of the Paris Peace Conference, which ended the First World War, and then through the Treaty of Versailles, the League was established. And I mentioned it because the League's assembly first sat on November the 15th of 1920. Moving on, now that of course went away in 1946. Some of the components of the League of Nations were blended into the United Nations. And today, the United Nations, of course, it's an inexact science, the population of the planet has now surpassed 8 billion people. 8 billion. Here's some interesting numbers for context. Uh, Between 1804 and 1927, the global population grew from 1 billion to 2 billion. It took 33 years after that to reach 3 billion. Since then, it's taken roughly 12.6 years to add another billion people. Now, some of the forecasts, and of course, this is predictions, and there can't be spot on. The UN's World Population Prospects 2022 report says that they expect the population to reach somewhere between 8.5 billion by 2030, 9.7 billion by 2050, and over 10 billion in the 2080s and remain stable until then. Now, some people take exception to these forecasts, but the basics of it is people are having fewer children. It's as simple as that. Look at the, the countries, the big ones, China and India. China's recording its lowest birth rate in history. 
India has just dropped below replacement rate for its birth rate. That's 36% of the entire population that are now not replacing or are not at replacement level birth rates. The same can be said right around the world, and certainly in this country, exactly the same thing. In Canada, the annual rate of growth has dropped from roughly 3% in the late 1950s to 0.7% in 2020. Same thing, very similar in the United States, so 8 billion people. Not only is that a whopping big number, but it poses some interesting challenges. Sustainability, environmental impacts, and yes, economic impacts. So fewer children... Of course, the age of the population is growing year over year with advances in medical science, for instance. So fewer people in the workforce, more seniors that have worked through their consumptive portion of their adult lives. So the economic imbalance is something that we can't sleepwalk into and to understand it. And certainly that's a conversation we've been having in this province as well, hasn't it been? So you want to talk about that? Uh, let's go. Interesting notes I heard from Brian Medour in the newscast. So people are keeping an eye on their mailbox for the inflation pressure relief check. 500 bucks for those earning $100,000 or less, and the sliding scale up to $250 for those earning $125,000 or less. Now, it's very much a political tool to try to address the quote-unquote middle class that's been left out of a lot of the supports that have come from both the province and the federal government through the course of the pandemic. This is a strange uh, component of it, though. So no direct deposit opportunity. Everything's coming in a paper check in the mailbox. So if we're told some 392,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians will get these checks, it would be curious to know from the Department of Finance exactly what this is going to cost. We know that the package in full is going to cost some $194 million. Is that the number I remember correctly? But what's the additional cost for the manpower, the postage? I don't know what the process would be at government, but, you know, someone has to take a paper check that's been printed and stuff it in an envelope. The addresses are going to be used with your last recorded address at CRA of last summer. So a few things. That's a whopping big cost. And secondly, people move. Not everyone who's going to get that check lives in the same place they lived in last year. So seems like a bit of a curious play, but... Anyway, some people are certainly anticipating that check showing up, and it probably will this week. Okay, so the surge on the maritime link that saw some 57,000 customers without power, albeit not for very long. Nice job done in restoring power. Apparently, the average was about 16 minutes after the lights and the power went out for it to be restored. But they're calling it a significant event. And it's all about the uh, flow of power from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia. So here's a, the comments coming from uh, Newfoundland Hydro itself. So they call it an under-frequency load shedding event. Power exported from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia was much faster than usual, leading to an imbalance. And because of that, there's a predetermined block of customers automatically dropped to protect the system from going into a widespread blackout. So it's good that these backstops are there. It would be nice to know a little bit more about what's going on here, though, because it's not the first time we've seen a surge and a power imbalance that's led to some weird stuff. Not just the power going out, but remember, it's not that long ago that the clocks were impacted. You know, people were reporting rapid fire to me. What's going on? My clock all of a sudden is five minutes fast, which is a strange phenomenon for a surge or an imbalance in power. But they're investigating us to see exactly what happened. They don't know as of yet. They are calling it an isolated incident. But yet more to the Muskrat Falls debacle. And, of course, the Maritime Link built on schedule, on budget, part of the $1.52 billion component 
of the old Muskrat Falls project. And of course, here comes the cold winter months. It was freezing yesterday, miserable old day yesterday. We still need to know more about what kind of protections are going to be there for folks heating their homes. You know, there is a one-time fuel rebate. It does not impact people who use electricity uh, from hydro. It doesn't include people who use wood to heat their home. And the cost is just out of control. And people repeatedly tell me, well, there's an exemption of the carbon tax, for instance, on home heating fuels, but that might not always be the case. So, you know, I hear people worrying about this all the time, and rightfully so. On that front, I've been talking about, and I think many people have been talking about, some of the issues we're seeing in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And that in particular is the homelessness issue with some 80 people living on the trail network. The focus, by and large, has been on public safety. And understandably so. If people feel unsafe, then they're asking for more enhanced police presence. Of course, not a whole lot of focus about the 80 people living on the trail network itself. You know, whether it be mental health-related matters or addiction-related matters, you know, I talk about the, the cold winter ahead. Since 2015, five people have froze to death living on those trail networks. Five people froze to death. There was a recent vigil held to remember them but while we focus in on the police, police presence, public safety, it's probably pretty important to understand who the 80 people are, how and why they ended up there. I mean, nobody wants to live outside in Labrador in the winter. And if five are dead as a result of freezing to death, you know, maybe some more focus and conversation about who these 80 people are as well. I was shocked to see that number when I read a news story this morning. Five since 2015 froze to death. Unbelievable. How do you talk about cost? I, sta- I stood, sat, stood in the grocery store the other day thinking about making a chicken Caesar salad and looking at a head of romaine lettuce and the price tag. Seven bucks. Seven bucks for a head of romaine. Now, apparently, there's a real shortage in lettuce. Some restaurants have even dropped their salad options from the menu as they wait for prices to stabilize a little bit, whether it be with a drought in California or whatever the case may be. But, you know, some of the things that were not only part of a potentially healthy meal, but a cost-effective meal, seven bucks for a head of romaine. Oh, my gosh. What do you know? Now, stick with food for a minute. This is a bit more lighthearted. Good morning to the lucky students and staff at Gander Collegiate. Chef Josh Boyd is now running the cafeteria and canteen services at Gander Collegiate. Thinking back to when I was in high school, you know, it was basically some terrible pizza or some awful fries and gravy. That was the basics of the offerings at the high school cafeteria. Not so much for Chef Boyd and his crew. He also does private catering, has a meal kit, uh, meal kit pickup, and he runs the restaurant at the golf course as well. So get a load of some of the stuff that working with the dietitian at Central Health, you know, come up with meeting Canada's food guide for the menu. Okay, pizza. Absolutely. How about this? Turkey dinner. They sold more turkey dinners to the teenagers than they did pizza. They've got pulled pork sandwiches, mac and cheese, chicken and waffles, stuffed pretzels. On and on it goes. They try to keep the pricing between 5 and 10 bucks. Most of the recess items are less than $5. The problem that's been created because of Chef Boyd's terrific culinary offerings... The lineup is out the door. <laughs> of course it is. One young fella says he's eating there every single day because it's so good. So they're trying to figure it out, maybe some pre-orders, but a little bit of light heart in the food conversation. Chef Je- Chef Josh, thrilling the students and staff at Gander Collegiate. Anyway, let's go. Uh, sticking with school, you know, you wonder what the absentee rate is and where the 
the numbers would equate some adjustment to what's happening in school. Now, there's a couple of families that are constantly giving me updates, which I do appreciate. You know, they fluctuate between 30, 40, 50 percent, depending on the day. We do hear the stories from around the country about the increase in children presenting at emergency rooms and being hospitalized with a variety of respiratory illnesses. You know, influenza, RSV, COVID, whatever the case may be. The Janeway is reporting an increase as well, although not over capacity. So nothing's been impacted so far as surgeries and things go. Couple of notes on that front. It looks like Health Canada has secured what they're calling a foreign supply of children's acetaminophen, both for retail and pharmacies and to secure supply for hospitals. So for parents who have been worried or caregivers who have been worried about the absence of children's acetaminophen products on the shelves, it looks like that will be rectified, which is, of course, good news. Because if there's an issue now, the potential for it to surge and to grow even further over the winter months is very real. So it looks like those shelves are going to be restocked. And again, many people looking to Ontario yesterday and their chief medical officer of public health, Dr. Karen Moore. It was all about masks, and you know where I stand on that. I'm still confused as to how it's such a flashpoint, but it is, and so be it, and we can talk about it. And there's no one surefire silver bullet that will offer maximum protection, and you don't have to do anything else. Public health measures in combination have been effective. No one standalone thing, mask or otherwise, or vaccine, has proven to be the be-all and end-all. So the worry is that we'll see the return of mandates, and that word has become hated by so many Canadians. Dr. Moore, and also out in British Columbia, now they're just strongly recommending it. Even when there was mask mandates here, you know, remember when Dr. Fitzgerald would say things like, be kind if you see someone not wearing a mask when the mandates were in place? It was hardly enforced. Even the COVID app for, you know, proving your vaccination status to go to businesses, that was rarely implemented, rarely checked. And I know there's many places I went there, they didn't even ask for it. So what will we see here? It looks like very likely i'm going to say i doubt there'll be a mandate on that front but i won't be surprised and nor will many of you if we hear sometime in the future that there are going to be more encouragement of wearing a mask in public indoor spaces what that means for going to the grocery store or the bond store or in school i don't know but there were people waiting with bated breath to flip out if there was a mandate instituted in Ontario, but it hasn't been. It's a recommendation. You want to talk about that? As painful as it could be, we can certainly do it here this morning on the program. Moving off to other issues. Minister Parsons is responding to some of the concerns being offered by people far and wide about the amount of land that could be used for the 30-odd wind proposals, including almost the entirety of the Buren Peninsula. Now, the map may indeed be a little misleading, because if all of those huge swaths of land are used for windmills, we've got ourselves a problem. Even the consultations available to hear the concerns of people in the province, like today, for instance, the sessions are taking place from 12 to 1.30 today, or yesterday and today, so people can participate, but they have to register online. Looks like we're really, I'm not going to say throwing caution to the wind, because that's not fair, but it's the whole concept of being out of the gate early or first, to get ahead of it, to take advantage of whatever business proposal would like to do something with wind, whether it be green hydrogen or otherwise. But we can't fast track this, you know, for starters. I haven't really heard enough to tell me that there's a lot in it for us. 
you know, whether it be what the leasing cost of Crown Land would be, and hopefully we're not selling any of it, hopefully we just find a way to backstop ourselves with a lease. But so the construction jobs, yes, there will absolutely be jobs in the construction phase, but that doesn't last forever. You know, operation jobs for the long term, even in some of the biggest proposals, it looks like about 30 people which is not nothing, but it's not massive. So what really is in it for us? I mean, that's the looming question. Yeah, construction jobs. Yeah, corporate taxes. At what level they will be. We still don't really know the implication of these projects with our own electric grid, electricity grid. So will there be some sort of royalty? Can someone give me a forecast? Even if we just look at one project. And of course, the most notable is World Energy GH2. What do we think the economic impact will be five years, 10 years, 20, whatever the case may be, and based on what? So moving fast to get to be part of the origins, the infancy of green hydrogen or otherwise, okay, I get it. But still someone owes us a bit more of a detailed answer as to exactly what is in it for us beyond construction jobs. Anyway, you want to take it on? That's another good one. A couple of quickies. Someone asked me an important question, an interesting question via email this morning. is regarding the sugar tax. Now, there's still lots of confusion that I'm paying it on eggnog, but not on chocolate milk and all these types of things. And some diet drinks are being taxed as well. So there's still confusion out there, which is not surprising at all. It'd be nice to know from the Department of Finance exactly what the implication has been with people's behaviors. Are people purchasing less pop? Because remember, we were told that they didn't anticipate it to have a negative impact on jobs. So whether it be the good folks at Brown and Harvey or the Department of Finance, give us an idea just how much of the product is being sold or not being sold, because they must have some inclination at this moment in time. A couple of quick good ones before we get off to the break and your call. Good morning to the good folks at the Single Parent Association. They have officially launched their annual Christmas Magic Donation Drive. They've got some 250 families that are already registered for the program, another 100 on the wait list. So basics are they're looking for presents for children. You know, some monetary donations, but importantly, if you're going to consider participating and making a donation to the Single Parent Association, generally speaking, over the years, the gifts coming in really didn't focus much on teenagers, which highlights the importance of a gift card if you're so inclined and have the capacity or the resources to make that donation. Because then the parent, on the receiving end, gets to go shop, right? Or the teen gets it in their hand and go get exactly what they would like to have for Christmas. So they've launched the campaign. If you can participate, please do exactly that. Contact uh, the folks at the Single Parent Association. Their executive director, Sonia Smith, who we've done a lot of work with over the years. And one last one. I want to say good morning to Alexis McDonald. St. John's teenager. She's 13. She's a grade 8 student at Ecole Rocher de Nord. She was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. She is now part of the Youth Advisory Council of About Face, which is a national charity. They've launched a video campaign saying, I am just the same as you. So one of the quotes from Alexis. People say that we're different. We can't do a lot of stuff. And we're not smart and all that. But she goes on to say, with different faces and different bodies, it doesn't mean we're different. It doesn't mean we're not capable of doing the exact same things as other people are. You know, she goes back to thinking about when she was in grade four. And someone, you know, called her flat nose. She goes on, and I tell you, way to go, Alexis. I do feel kind of sad and all that stuff, but it's their problem. And they can believe that, but as long as you believe you can do it, then you can do it. So keep an eye out for this video campaign. I am just the same as you. Bravo, Alexis. It's hard. We all know it. Like, even with 
our insecurities. When I was young and had the acne and stuff, we're always ashamed and embarrassed. And so Alexis living with a cleft lip and a cleft palate, she's out there showing off her stuff as a tra trapeze performance in this particular video. So uh, the very best of good mornings to Alexis and everyone belonging to the Youth, Advi Youth Advisory Council of About Face. We're on Twitter or VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, Bruce, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning. I'm just calling about uh, to give the consumers uh, a heads up on buying a used oil tank. Okay. Uh, there are some brands out there that if you buy the oil tank, it uh, they will not they will not guarantee it, and you cannot get it certified. The tank that I bought was a Grandy, and I ended up phoning my insurance company, and they said it was okay. But when I went to go get it certified through the oil company. It, they said no, it would not be certified because it's moved from one place to the other. So the search, so the warranty was gone, and there's 22 years left on this tank. That's interesting because if you have a qualified person inspect the tank, because it can be compromised simply by being moved, whether it be seals affected by sunlight and that kind of stuff. So you need an inspection, but they're saying even if you have it inspected, they won't certify it. No, no, because it's uh, uh, the the company itself provides the, the warranty. It wants us move from one. Oh, okay. So Grandy won't allow this to happen. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I understand. The, company, the ones that makes the drum. Got it. Now there is some that you can uh, that you can get certified under different brand names. So I just uh, give people a heads up that all the insurance company said it was okay for me to to get it, but. The all company will not certify it because of the because of the, the, the company itself. That's an excellent heads up because all you need is to make a purchase knowing that you've got an inspector lined up, but the company has a caveat there that takes away their warranty, consequently no certification. So that's a good heads up for the listeners this morning, Bruce. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. Good man. All the best. Bye bye. Okay, bye, -bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Doctor Phil Earl, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking your call. No problem. Um, I think it was last week I caught the tail end of uh, Gus was on talking about the, the fishery in the moratorium, and I've been meaning to come on and follow up and make a comment. But uh, first of all, I'd like to say and there's a couple of things that happened in the last month or so here in Newfoundland, which kind of surprised me. Uh, one was uh, I heard the minister, finance ministers, talk about they want to put uh, save money and put the money away in a fund because I think the budget was... Uh, a billion dollars uh, positive or something, and uh, they're going to try to save some of this money. I guess it was because the oil prices are up. That was number one. And two, there's a new hospital talked about, and we place superior hospitals in St. John's, which is no doubt needed. But what surprises me, uh, how could we be putting away, you know, some hundreds of millions of dollars, which is a nice idea, and building a new hospital, five or six hundred billion dollars, which is a nice idea? When you think of the situation of uh, medicine here in the province, somewhat over 100,000 people don't have a family doctor, and a shortage of specialists, you can you can go in there and the health science center and see, you know, neurologists, rheumatologists, and all the rest of them were short. And you would think that uh, if we had some extra money that uh, we put it in to fix our medical system, make it more efficient, the patients, uh, more care, seniors, and so on. 
that was that was that was one issue, and you mentioned that. But I want to follow up with that as to what that leads into. Because talking about the fisheries in the moratorium was some thirty years. Now, I've seen the letter that uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, I think, it was in seventy-one or two. He sent to Joey Smallwood about custodial management and extending the continental shelf to include nose and tail to bank. And Mr. Harper, when he ran his election, he came to Newfoundland and he said the same types of thing was in the paper, that they were going to get custody managing and include the nose and tail of the bank and all these things, which are, so they, they obviously know about it in Ottawa, but it's never happened. Now, here's this 30 years, and this ground fishery, probably the greatest of its kind in the world, some 32 species, and if you look at the, the fishery we have today, basically, I think it's somewhere around a billion dollars or 800 million crab and shrimp. Well, back in the day when we were healthy in the 60s and 70s, our ground fishery was bigger probably than Iceland and Norway's put together. And there's somewhere in the vicinity of 12 to $15 billion of the total fishery, the ground fishery we could have that we don't have. So if you consider over 30 years, let's say, let's use a figure of $15 billion a year. And that's roughly $450 billion. Well, that's $500 billion, let's say, to make it simple. Now, if the government took taxes on that, say 15 or 20 percent, there's 80 or $100 billion our problems would have uh, gathered over the 30-year period that we would have had in our coffers. And you talk about money and uh, being out of doctors and all the rest of our fishery, this great resource, been ignored and still ignored after 30 years. And from what I hear of people who know about it, there's still some hundred trawlers, uh, or draggers, I should say, modern draggers on the nose and tail of the bank, all around the border there of our uh, exclusive economic zone, and there's no way the migrating fish that comes into our shores in the summertime, which is how Newfoundland was all about one time, inshore fishery, it can't return, can't happen. People say, well, yes, we know there's... Uh, there's, there's seals and there's a the temperature of water and all these things. But everyone basically knows anything about the fishery that is still being fished. And the fish is 30 years and no one cares about it, doesn't look into it, we don't do anything with foreigners. And, and it's really a shame as a crime that our province has allowed this great resource. And for us to be in the financial sh- shape that we're in, well, maybe not this year, we're positive, but for the last number of years, all this money we're missing, all the jobs we're missing, I just find it a tragedy that something isn't done about it, particularly our local government, the premier, and, you know, to get after Ottawa, the fisheries department, and so on. But there it is. A sad situation, Patty, for our great heritage. Well, I mean, yes. And, you know, talking about the historical impact is important to understand how we got to the place we are in today. I don't know what can be done to rewrite that history, but whether or not it's a, uh, an understanding by political and federal officials about the fishery here off our coast or not, and I think there's certainly something to that, but the impacts, whether it be with seal predation or the temperature of the water, we also have to factor in the fact that there's so much of the total allowable catch that doesn't even get fished by Canadian fish harvesters or Newfoundlanders or Labradorians. It get fished by foreign vessels. That means if we could settle and solve that, or at least reduce the amount of total allowable catch that ends up in a foreign trawler's hull, the, or hold, we'd be way further ahead. And I mean, that gets lost in the shuffle. We had Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray on this show last week. 
talking about exactly that. Like, here we are entering into declarations of intent or memorandums of understanding with Germany regarding green hydrogen. My question to her was, we've used the fishery as a diplomatic bargaining tool. And so, consequently, isn't it time that we get something back you know, and whether that be expanded markets or get back some quotas held by foreign countries, we don't get anything back. We've always just given on the fishery. Well, you're, you know, you mentioned about on the West Coast and Port of Port and the windmills and so on. I, I was hoping, well, it's going to be 5% off the top for everything for this province, but now I hear it's about 0.8%. But, but what you said is right. I'd just like to say, uh, here it is the state of the fishery, and the foreigners are still out there, and we can't get our local government, which our Premier now and our, our members of the House in there, we can't get no one to even talk about it. They talk about various things and resources, but pass over the fishery it doesn't exist. And I think they've taken the, 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 the portfolio of the fishery and now including three or four others together, the Minister of Forest, the Minister of and there's like this disregard of no future. Well, I mean, I, I can't believe that this problem is our, our, our leaders, and no one talks about it, and it's affected, you know, so many people in rural Newfoundland, it must be, you know, 50,000 families, and there's a couple of hundred thousand people up and down around the shore of Newfoundland and Labrador permanently affected, you know. It's, it's a great tragedy, great tragedy, and nobody still is doing anything about it, Patty. Appreciate the time this morning, Phil. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's go and take a break. When we come back, oh, actually, first. So this Thursday, beginning at 7 a.m., VOCM is going to broadcast for 24 hours straight from Daffodil Place. It's the annual One Night Stand Against Cancer campaign. Greg uh, Greg Smith will be the host. And since 2015, the honorary chair of One Night Stand Against Cancer is Alan Hocko. Hocko in the queue. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Well, people traveling to St. John's for their cancer treatments and staying at Daffodil Place, they could charge $30 per person for a standard room. For two singles or one queen, $20 per day for each additional guest. But it costs the Canadian Cancer Society $100 per night. So not only do they get the accommodation, but they get three hot meals, plus snacks, transportation, to and fro appointments, evening entertainment, and of course, some emotional and practical support. Since 2015, Alan Hocko has been the honorary chair of the One Night Stand Against Cancer, and he joins us on line number five. Good morning, Alan. You're on the air. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Couldn't be better. How about you? Uh, I'm great, and I'm excited, appreciative, uh, and excited to be talking about Daffodil Place, as always. I mean, it's such a, an important part of our, you know, our community, and it's such an important thing for, for those uh, <clears throat> those who are unfortunate enough to be dealt that terrible uh, cancer diagnosis and have to travel in from out of town to, to deal with it, you know, with... Uh, to deal with it within the the hospital system, and and uh, they have nowhere to stay. So obviously, it's a it's a really important uh, thing for St. John's and for the province. Yeah, our buddy Alan Doyle was the co-chair of the capital fundraising campaign with John Steele, as a matter of fact. And they raised the money to build Daffodil Place at the time, not for ongoing annual operational costs. So when we see the rates as low as they are for the guests at Daffodil Place, but the reality is it costs a hundred dollars for the CCS. There's a big gap that we have to fill. Why is this important to you, Alan? To stick with us in. 2015 well you know it's just the kind of thing that you know i started working with al pelly and and the cancer society at daffodil place and all the staff at daffodil place and it just really warms my heart uh how into it and how dedicated everyone is to the cause and then you go meet people who are staying there 
you have these conversations with people who, you know, it's tough. Uh, it's tough times out there for everybody. But if you're in a situation where you might have to remortgage your house or sell your house uh, in order to go stay somewhere, when you have to go through the horrible reality of cancer treatment, obviously, we've all, everyone in this province has been touched by cancer one way or another, directly, directly oh. family members. We know how brutal it can be. Absolutely. You know, you just think if we pull Daffodil Place out of the offering, how many people on top of their ill health would find themselves bankrupt? I mean, these are circumstances that, you know, are unavoidable. You have to travel to St. John's. Not everybody has family or friends that they can stay with. So we've got to make sure that Daffodil Place is able to offer this affordable lodging and all the perks that go with it with three hot meals and snacks and entertainment and the emotional and uh, support that they get at Daffodil Place. So what's going on this Thursday? I know we're going 24 hours straight here on VOCM. What do you want to say to the folks to, you know, make sure that whoever can, you know, it's a tough time of year. Times are tough, but no tougher than they are for the guests at Daffodil Place. So what do we want people to do here on Thursday? Yeah, well, obviously the telethon's coming up. So, you know, it's a good opportunity uh, if you've had anyone in your life who's touched by cancer or if you yourself have been through it, you know it. You know, one idea, too, as we're coming up on Christmas is instead of, you know, reaching out to to get the uh, the new sweater or a pair of gloves or socks uh, your family member or loved ones don't need, think about ma- making a donation to Daffodil Place on, on their behalf. You know, it's 100 bucks. 100 bucks buys a night. So you mentioned the prices. So uh, uh, over and above those prices that the patients pay, Daffodil Place has to kick in the extra 100 bucks. And what that 100 bucks pays for is literally keeping the doors open. Uh, there's very, very few staff, very little overhead, and the services are so immense. Like you mentioned the meals. It's not just the meals that Daffodil Place provides. They drive uh, the patients to and from their doctor's appointments. There's counseling. Uh, there's also a real sense of community. There's wi- people volunteering who are, who are putting wigs together for people. It's, you know, cleaning your room when, you, when you've gone through it's a series of cancer treatments and you go home and you're fighting for your life. The last thing you want to do is be able to mop the floor. You know, just those little tiny things aside from just a roof over your head. So... This Thursday uh, on VOCM, we're doing a, a big telethon with Greg Smith. Call in, make your pledge, 100 bucks. In, you know, do it in someone's name. Do it in on honor of someone, or or do it as a birthday gift, uh, or a Christmas gift. Sorry, uh, for the holiday season. You know, it's a good idea. I think people will appreciate it versus maybe getting the old. Uh, the old standard last-minute purchase uh, at the Walmart for for a Christmas gift. Hey, don't be mocking my, my Christmas shopping behavior. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm one of you. It's the worst. It's like, but, it, you know, instead of running to the mall, look, it's all good. Everyone should be uh, going to do what they got to do. But, you know, think about making a pledge to, to Daffodil Place as a Christmas gift for your friends. Also, too, Patty, I'm on Cameo, you know, that uh, celebrity um, greetings app. But all of my proceeds go toward Daffodil Place, everything that I've ever earned on on uh, Cameo. If you go on there and want me to do a, a Christmas greeting or a birthday greeting or what any kind of greeting you want, uh, all proceeds aside from uh, uh, Cameo's cut goes to Daffodil Place. And I've raised about 10 k uh, so far just 
doing that uh, off and on. So if you can either do it that way, the best way to do it is obviously to donate directly to Daffodil Place. Tune into VOCM on Thursday and call in. Absolutely. Uh, keep up the good work, Alan. So since 2015, you've been the face of this campaign. I'm sure it's made a, real, a big difference for the folks, the guests, and the people like Al Pelli and staff at Daffodil Place. Good to have you on the show this morning. Stay in touch. Thank you, and thank you to VOCM for, for all the support. And uh, keep up the great work, Patty. You're, you're, you're a voice for all of us. Uh, we'd love to hear you. Thanks a lot, buddy. Cheers. All the best. Bye-bye. Here you go. It's the Hawk, Alan Hawko, the honorary chair of the One Night Stand Against Cancer. And, yes, it comes up Thursday beginning at 7 a.m. The number to dial, you want to jot it down now. You'll hear it repeatedly from Greg Smith on Thursday. It's toll-free, one 229 0146 or you can absolutely go online for a secure opportunity to make that donation I think Hako hits the nail on the head when he says we, we know this to be true we've all been touched or impacted by cancer in one form or another whether it be yourself family member friend so to make a pledge of $100 to remember those lost or those who are continuing the fight whatever the case may be if you have the opportunity and the capacity to make a do- uh, $100 donation on Thursday, please do exactly that. Let's take a break right on time. When we come back, the topic is up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Jamie Ward, the manager of the regional analytics lab, the RAN lab. Good morning, Jamie. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. Right off the bat, I'm not really familiar with exactly what goes on at the lab. Describe what the role is that you play and what the lab does. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Regional Analytics Lab, or RAN Lab for short as we call it, is an initiative of the Harris Center of the university. And so, uh, like the Harris Center in general, we're really jammed in between the university and local communities in the province. Um, But for us, we're really the data analysis wing of them. So we deal with a lot of numbers and analysis, more so on the community or regional level. Now, we're not talking about exact science here, but the United Nations and their World Population Prospects report for this year says the planet's population has now exceeded 8 billion. There's lots of implications there, but let's bring it back to home. What are we looking at when we talk about provincial population? We've seen a little bit of a spike, you know, people moving from Ontario, immigration numbers are up. But what are you looking at with these population numbers? We don't have to talk about 8 billion because that's hard to wrap your mind around. But what are we talking about provincially? Yeah, it's a different it's a different world entirely, eh? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, provincially, I think there's, uh, um, as you mentioned, I mean, the indications are good lately. It was very sort of not good for a long time, right? I mean, uh, we we've had uh, deaths exceeding births. There's been more deaths for birth than births now for about ten years, and so uh, the natural population growth in terms of how the population grows itself is is in deficit. So we're losing people through through that every single year. And so we've really been at the mercy of migration. And um, as we all know, uh, I think it's been a real struggle, especially on some of the rural community level uh, in the years since the moratorium with, say, retaining high school kids, retaining, you know, recent grads and whatnot uh, with the migration and everything. And so, uh, yeah, so we were sort of locked in that mode for a really long time. And now I think in the past, the, the, the indications from the data the last uh, couple of quarters now are really positive uh, in a way uh, you know so we've got uh, we've got growth I think nationally though uh, it is important to note that it's almost entirely international migration uh, I think nationally it's something like 94 95 percent of the growth last the last little bit has been uh, from international migrants coming into the country uh, we also had a record number of non-permanent residents uh, so you know we think of the the folks from Ukraine and whatnot coming in. 
And so uh, it's going to take a little while to know uh, sort of how permanent this is and if we can sustain it. Um, but for the time being, it's, you know, it's, it's better than nothing, right? <laughs> and so uh, we've got to wait to see how that, that goes for sure. Um, now, there is concern. So, actually, so obviously on the provincial level, you know, things are starting to eke up a little bit. Uh, we still have, um, uh, from all of the data that we've seen, uh, uh, not everywhere in the province, obviously, is starting from the same place. Um, historically, from the data, um, most of the migrants have tended to concentrate around the St. John's area, um, and that is the area that has sort of uh, the lowest average age, if you think, when you think of demographic decline and whatnot. Um, and so things tend to be focused in St. John's. And what really, what what we're really looking out for the next little bit is how well these things can, the people can start getting uh, distributed around the province to the communities and the labor markets that need them. Well, because when you look at it, even if we just take some of the work done at uh, municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, of the 275 incorporated municipalities in the province, 78% of them have a population of 1,000 or fewer. So to your point, that's unsustainable just in and of itself. So I don't know if this is something in your ballywick, but how does that happen? Because it's probably not going to happen organically. How do we see the dispersion of newcomers to be a little bit more widespread versus, as you rightfully point out, the concentration in the, in the city centre? Yeah, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of policy. I mean, you've got to remember, too, right? I mean, a lot of the lessons when it comes to, you know, working with newcomers, incorporated in the population, these are in the areas that have experience with newcomers coming in. And so a lot of the institution and whatnot, a lot of the expertise around St. John's, uh, I was talking to one guy, uh, a student that we had who had a work term in uh, a town. I don't want to get too specific, but he was out around, and he was from India, and there was nothing in the local grocery store. Uh, you know, the, he he couldn't get the food that he that 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 he was sort of used to, and so he came back to St. John's, right? And so there's a lot of these sort of little things uh, that that we work at, but um, it, the urgency is different, right? And you mentioned from the MNL. Uh, context. Uh, uh, we do breakdowns sort of similarly and regionally, and uh, like, but if there's like a 10 year average age difference. Uh, rural spots are, as a group, have an average age in the 50s, uh, which is incredible. It's, in, it's, in, it's incredibly unsustainable, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, and so it's, uh, it's, it's a tough slog, but there's definite steps you can take in terms of, you know, you know, sort of welcoming and sort of, you know, speaking to the, 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 the sort of institutions that are around uh, that sort of hold that, that expertise. Because we have to remember, when we talk about immigration too, it's important to note that there are four different silos because sometimes people just sim- simply think immigration, all refugees. Not true. I mean, the way the federal government is now approaching their want for 1.4 million immigrants in the next three years is a selection process looking at skills, whether it be in healthcare, construction, and otherwise. So... If it starts with the baby steps of newcomers who are, for instance, healthcare professionals, because if you have a community growing, the likelihood for people to want to be part of that community in Lewisport versus St. John's is something that we can build upon, as opposed to think we can start from scratch and all of a sudden there's all the offerings in the grocery store and there's a mosque or whatever the case may be. So, you know, there's different approaches that yeah. we can take that are pragmatic on yeah. that front. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I mean, the data is getting to a level of resolution that you know we can we can be you know, we can have a, we can have a much better idea these days about where the sort of skill gaps are. Uh, like traditionally, it was all I mean the the main focus was on you know doctors and sort of high high skilled you know uh, targeted immigration and whatnot. 
uh, one of the byproducts of having age structures such as we do is, is I mean, it's it's getting it's cutting pretty deep these days. I mean, uh, there's you know, I mean, you, you can you can talk to almost any fish plant in the province about the challenges that they've had. Uh, you know, um, so yeah, it's uh, it definitely uh, there's a lot of flexibility, there's a lot of options out there. And I would remind, and I think too, it's not it's not just immigration. You know, I mean, one of the things we've been trying to say is, is to keep an eye on productivity as well. I mean, um, you know, if we can get as much work done uh, with fewer people or with the same number of people uh, going forward, uh, it really has the same uh, the same effect as getting more people in. You know. Well, Canada has a productivity problem. We long have. Yeah. You know, real yeah, shortcomings there. You know, some of the basics, even if we look at the international numbers, and it's not verifiable. We don't know if the $8 billion was surpassed a month ago or hasn't been yet. We just don't know. It's just one of the targets or the dates that was randomly chosen by the UN. But the basics are people are just having fewer children. I mean, if you just look at your own family and see how many kids, uh, children that your nan and pop had or your great-grandparents had, and then compare it to how many children you have, I mean, it's just changing dramatically. Even if you look at the big numbers, numbers in China, uh, lowest birth rate in history, India is not replacing, you know, fewer, fewer people are being born versus the number of people dying. That's long been the exact same metric we use here. Give us an idea yeah. whether it be provincially or regional breakdown, say, for instance, the Northeast Avalon versus other parts of the province with the birth rate and the death rate. Yeah, well, uh, as I said, about 10 years ago, our deaths surpassed our births. I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's funny how basic, a con- how basic of a concept it is. You, you, you need to average more than two babies per woman through your population to achieve what's called replacement, right? I think the latest numbers for Newfoundland has been about 1.5, 1.46 or so. So we're definitely below replacement. Um, I, I think uh, there, there are pockets here and there that flirt with two, but it's not seen as a viable strategy going forward to grow your population. Even in these the, the areas of the world that are growing, I think one of the headlines is that the growth is slowing. Um, I think our, our director, uh, Rob Greenwood, has said a number of times that, uh, you know, around the world, it's almost a universal truth that, um, you know, that the birth rates are negatively correlated with the ed- education in women, right? So, I mean, as women get more educated as a society, the society has fewer babies. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, uh, so far as development is concerned. So uh, we really have to look in these other other ways. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 one of the big concerns uh, lately with the data coming out and whatnot has been that sort of regional allocation. Um, uh, but it's really more on the migration end. I think on the birth end, uh, the birth, death, natural population end, uh, it's it's almost you know it's it's uh, it's it's very difficult to reverse because it's something that we see everywhere. It's not unique to here, uh, but you, to, to I, I just remembered something here. I can remember I was at a meeting a few years ago and um, someone came up to me and said, "Hey, you know we're going to be fine." Uh, I lost uh, you know I lost a bunch of siblings. Uh, they all sort of moved away, and the town is still here. It's all great. And I said, "Yeah, but how many siblings did you have?" And she had nine siblings. Yeah, and I think it's you can you can lose five or six and still be and still you know still maintain your core population if you only have one or two kids uh you 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 lose that flexibility uh and so it's a real problem when the trends continue and you're still consistently losing 80 percent of your high school class every year 
And it's just a change. Yeah, I mean, times are simply changing. You know, people might not want to have the big brood of five, six, ten kids, like was very much commonplace in years uh, years past. There are some public policies that have been kicked around and some have actually made made uh, made it in the budget part of me like remember back uh, former premier danny williams with a thousand dollars if you had a baby which was sort of a strange one but you know that was looking at the birth rate death rate issue then of course things like ten dollar daycare uh, may indeed see some additional conversation inside the family unit about maybe we'll have another one or maybe we'll have our first child because those are some of the things that government can focus on but this is organic stuff that happens in people's own individual circumstance not much that can be driven by public policy, or am I wrong? Well, it it always helps. You know, you want to be. You, it's a complex system. Uh, you don't want to have one answer. One, there's no one silver bullet here. So you just want to make sure that the policies you have are compatible with growth, or are, are, are not getting in people's way. Anyone sort of on the fence. You know, you want you, you know you don't want to kick them back over the other way just because of the policy or whatever. So, all of these things have to be considered, obviously, in terms of the cost and the effort and everything involved. But, um, you know, it's, it's baby steps, right? So, um, uh, you know, I think it's. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm keeping in mind as well that as you know, as immigrants come here, they have different birth rates, different cultures, and stuff themselves, and so, uh, you know, it, uh, what's what's you know when you're looking at like daycare and whatnot. Uh, I mean, I mean that helps with the productivity issue as well, right? I mean, so it's important to look at these things through their their different lenses, I guess you'd say. Makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer, Jamie, before I move off to the newscast? Oh, I'll just say that anyone has any questions or wants to check us out farther, check out our website, ramlab.ca. I uh, appreciate the time this morning. Good chat. Thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jimmy Ward, the manager of the Regional Analytics Lab, the Harris Center, Memorial University. That's interesting stuff there. It's 10 years ago where the death rate surpassed the birth rate in the province. And it's just times are changing, right? I know one family that has five children. I'm one of five. My mom and dad had five kids. The average amongst my social circle, you know, we're all in our early 50s, mid-50s. It's two. People have two kids. And gone are the days with the big, big... Now, of course, there's some out there. I have a friend who has five children at home. But that's the exception, not the rule, as it was years ago. Okay, Bob, appreciate the patience there, pal. He wants to talk about wait times right after this. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Bob, you're on the air. Uh, thank you, Mr. Daly, for taking my call. First time caller to your program. Welcome to the show. Uh, just to give you a brief uh, outline as to where I'm coming from. Uh, back several years ago, my wife was uh, diagnosed with some serious uh, medical issues, physical issues. Uh, we know of which is no cure. It's something we've come to grip with uh, as to how long it's going to take or whatever. But uh, over the past... Uh, three, four months, uh, she's developed some major mental issues. Um, of course, we all know about mental issues, and that is supposed to be highlighted and everything else as to the get, getting treatments and that. But I've reached this, the point now that I myself, I feel absolutely lost. I don't know where to go, who to, who to go to. Uh, we've been trying to get the things set up uh, through the family doctor, to get to see a psychiatrist, to get to see some uh, psychologists to, to see as to what's going on. 
And uh, the last reports back from the family doctor, in order to get something set up through Eastern Health to get to see those uh, specialists and everything else, it could take anywhere from three to four years. Uh, my wife, uh, I, was, I mean, from, from being very outgoing, she's here in the house. She don't want to go outside. She don't want to. She can't, she can't drive. She just don't feel secure enough. Uh, she, she basically almost don't want to see any uh, anyone. She, uh, she, she gets so upset. She's just walking around the house in a daze. Where do I go? Who do I turn to? I wish I could tell you. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, you're one of many. Now, of course, every circumstance is different inside the family or for individuals. But these wait times are just completely out of, out of control in so many different areas. So what have you tried? You know, I'll try to scramble my brain to think about who I can point put you on to, but I really don't know. We've gone through Eastern Health. Uh, days okay to get together in the system. We did go on our own to see a psychiatrist at the, at the Waterford. Uh, we had a very good chat there, and uh, like there's not much they can do. Uh, the only other option uh, is for me to go through a, a private clinic. And you know the cost involved in that. You're talking somewhere in the range of, say, $200 for an hour session. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, funds are limited to, to everyone. And, and uh, you know, Eastern Eastern Health uh, keeps keeps telling us, uh, you know, you're in the system. We'll get get to you when we can. Now, right now, uh, when we call the 811, which is, you know, a very helpful line. They'll give you a lot of information, and I'm sure they help a lot, lot of people. They'll turn around and uh, ask you if you're uh, about to injure yourself or do you feel like you're going to injure someone else. Okay, unless it seems like unless you t- tell someone that you, you're, going to, you're going to commit suicide or you're going to injure someone, you just put on the back burner. And I mean, for for three to four years, I, I got to sit here and just watch my wife walk around the house like this. I not, you know, basically got to if if I go out somewhere, I got to have someone here. Or I got to keep in contact with the phone, or you know, this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I just don't know where to turn. I really don't. Not to get too personal, Bob, but you know, help us paint a, a more elaborate or detailed picture of the impact this has had on your wife and the impact it's had on you? Uh, we, we used to be very outgoing. Uh, we have a summer home we used to spend weeks into. Uh, this past summer, we got to visit that summer home on three occasions, three weekends. She just uh, just don't feel like going outside. She's 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 not coherent enough to know as to she, she feels like talk to her. She she feels empty. She feels lonely. She knows she got all her family around her, uh, children, grandchildren, uh, other family members, net. But yet she just can't shake the, the fact of she just going around the house, uh, just walking around. She's over anxious. She's all of a, a, a tremor. She's uh, having trouble sleeping. She's having trouble eating. She don't care if she cooks a meal. Uh, you can have to live with someone for 50 odd years. You can certainly see the impact something like that could have on someone and on, on the entire family. 
Of course. Um, what, what I can do, because, I mean, I, I don't have any levers or strings that I can necessarily pull, but what I will do is sometime after the program today, make a few phone calls to see if I can, you know, even get you a better contact person as opposed to being asked the question as to whether or not you have suicidal ideations and a hope to get some help. Because I understand why they asked that question, but the way it came across to you was if that, if you didn't feel that way, then you were on the back burner. That's no place for people to feel like they belong or they should be put. So... I will absolutely, Bob, give this some thought and make a few calls after the program if I can get you a person to speak to that can give you some idea whether or not it be decrease the amount of time that you're going to possibly have to wait or point you in the right direction for some uh, uh, immediate supports, I'll do it. And I've got your number and I'll call you back. I certainly appreciate it. I wish you well, Bob. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, and like I, I never make any promises because, you know, I don't like making promises that I might not be able to keep. But, we've, you know, I've compiled a list of reasonable contacts in different arenas. And if we can get Bob some better answers or some additional support short term, then we'll try our best and I'll do that after the show. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just before we get to the next call, so I'm getting a lot of emails. Dave's getting a lot of calls. Same thing with the newsroom regarding the $500 checks. So here's the updated information, especially for those of you who have, don't have the same mailing address that you had back in June of 2020. Uh, pardon me, last summer. So the Department of Finance will only say that the money is starting to go out around the middle of the month and that all the checks will be distributed in about six weeks. They will be mailed to eligible residents based on the address on file with Canada Revenue Agency as of June of this year. Pardon me, this year. The processing order is based on individual incomes, meaning that the lowest incomes will get their money first. If you have moved and have an address change, you can contact the Tax Administration Division at this number. 1-877-729-6376. Again, 1-877-729-6376, or you can email them. It's an easy one, taxadmin at gov.nl.ca. I have the information here. If you didn't get a chance to jot it down, you send me a note. I will be happy enough to send this to you. Let's go. Line number four, say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. I really appreciate it. Happy to have you on. I think you want to talk about recruiting nurses from India. Before we get into the moving parts, I read an article in the National Press. I can't remember what outlet published it, but they talked about the fact that, of course, many provinces will be looking abroad to uh, recruit healthcare professionals. But there were some ethical concerns. You know, with everyone needing healthcare professionals where they are, have you understood that story? Did you read that story? What about the ethical impl- implications of what they called poaching healthcare workers as opposed to recruiting. I know that's a much more severe term, but have you heard that concern? I have. Uh, Dr. Tony Fang, uh, in particular, was interviewed for a Canadian press story. Dr. Tony Fang, of course, is a scholarly chair in uh, multiculturalism and specializes in immigration studies. He's got a fairly big unit within Memorial University of Newfoundland. And... um, And uh, so he raised a number of hanging questions. The questions weren't answered, but he did raise them and left what I would argue or suggest where they were left hanging for future discussion, which I think is never a bad thing, because, of course, this is an important consideration. Is it ethical to ask people if they would like to come to Canada 
and in particular to Newfoundland and Labrador, and bring with them their skills, knowing that in their host in their in their country of citizenship. Their skills may be of some value to them for the economic and social development of their of their country of citizenship. Very important question, Patty. That's something that uh, that really strikes home with a lot of people. Should we, in other words, and I'll put it to you in a very very blunt way, just to be able to frame the conversation. It's not a position that I hold. I don't agree with Dr. Tony Fang on many of his assertions or the questions that, that he raised and, and sort of sublimated that, that, he, that he felt there was an ethical concern to, because you cannot deny an individual the right to mobility. The, term use, the use of the term poaching was a pejorative. I don't think it was a very appropriate term at all, because what it did is it stripped the right and the opportunity of the individual to choose where they wanted to live, as if there was that we were poaching them, we were taking them against their will, uh, and they were, we were subjecting them to, uh, to a fraud or to a malfeasance. That, that is not what immigration is all about. And in fact, if we take that as a starting point of immigration, given the fact that 90% of all immigration that occurs to Newfoundland and Labrador is economic immigration, it's people who are seeking a better way of life and bringing their skills with them. If we think of that, that is the same across all of Canada, that the majority of our immigration that we that we uh, that we achieve is is from people who want to bring their skills with them. If you look at Memorial University itself, Memorial University recruits international students with the promise or with the uh, uh, attraction that if you leave your country of origin, your country of citizenship, you come study at Memorial University of Newfoundland, you gain skills in the course of your studies, instead of going back to your country of citizenship, we're really encouraging you to come to Newfoundland and Labrador and study at MUN because you can become a permanent resident of Newfoundland and Labrador. Is that ethical recruiting? So I've actually posed this question to Memorial University, to Dr. Tony Fang, and said, instead of leaving these questions hanging, we really should be digging into this. Is it ethical for Memorial University of Newfoundland to recruit students from the developing world uh, with not only the promise of a great education, but with the opportunity to become a permanent resident, to leave their country of citizenship on a permanent basis, become a permanent resident of Canada, uh, and um, is that ethical? Because does it leave a deficit in their host country? So, no, I'm not afraid of these questions at all. These are important questions, but I, I do not agree. I'll say it up front that I think that the right of the individual to seek a better opportunity for themselves, it is not poaching. I think that's a very, very poor choice of words. It's a pejorative. And uh, I encourage the diversity that would come. Because the, in the alternative, Patty, is that we only recruit from developed countries in a very bland and a very white way. And I'll say that very, very openly, is that if we were to take individuals and recruit them to come to Canada only from the developed world, which is largely the Europe, uh, Europe uh, and, uh, and, and, and the United States, uh, what will our, our ability to attract diversity becomes very, very diminished. 
and we okay. become exclusively a place which only is interested in attracting people from the developed world. I take a very, very different view from that. Well, I like diversity. Well, anyone who's ever spent any time in Europe can tell you that it's a very diversified population anyway. It's been a very mobile population. Like I was just recently in London. There's a million Muslims in London. So it's not like we're simply just looking for white healthcare professionals if we're recruiting in Europe. I, I want to make that point. And secondly, I think people are happy enough to see the roles filled by whoever. I was, you know, as minister responsible, I thought I would ask you this particular question. Um, yep. Secondly, you know, we know the gaps are real. We hear from uh, Yvette Coffey at the Registered Nurses Union frequently on this particular topic. It does become a secondary question, well, not, not secondary, an important question, even at the federal level, talking about uh, attracting 1.4 million immigrants over the course of three years. And this is not a pejorative, but it's important. Where are they going to live? It's one thing to bring them here to go to school, to fill some of the gaps in health care, but we all already know with the numbers of people that came from Afghanistan and Ukraine, we don't necessarily have enough places for them to live. So where are they going to live? So across the country, of course, the federal government has, you know, has, has indicated they're going to increase immigration levels. Uh, for the entire country, they want to bring in uh, up to five hundred thousand dollars, uh, five hundred thousand people per year, um, and the majority of that, they're, the federal government has indicated they're decreasing the level of refugee movements into the country and increasing the number of of individuals that um, that are bringing skills, economic immigrants. So one of the issues with housing, of course, is that the market can indeed uh, adjust and correct. Uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, our housing market, and I think it's, you know, I, there, are, there are issues. There's no point in denying that uh, it's not a tighter housing market. But we can grow housing stock. Uh, there is an increasing market for it. We are signaling to, uh, to builders that there is going to be a greater need for housing stock. So that creates an economic opportunity. But from my point of view, Patty, it's, it's a good problem to have in the sense that without under, uh, you know, understating it, this is a symbol of our success in many respects because housing is an issue. We are bringing in more people. We have opportunities to allow the market to adjust to this over the course of time. Um, and it really shows that we are a prefer you know, in terms of the national strategy or the national situation, Newfoundland and Labrador becomes in, uh, even further entrenched as a preferred place to go because while we do have issues, our housing, our housing issues are far, far less than probably anywhere else in the country. And Statistics Canada proves that out. That's just not an opinion that I hold. That's a, that's a, that's a truism. If somebody wants to move, you know, and as I say often to those who say, listen, I'm moving because, I'm, I'm leaving the province because uh, inflation and, and, and cost of living is, is so much higher here than anywhere else. Bear in mind, and just bearing on the facts, and this has to be stated, average price of a, of a, of a bungalow house in Ontario is now $800,000. In Newfoundland and Labrador, it hovers on approximately $300,000. The cost of inflation or the price of inflation in Ontario uh, exceeds, uh, if, is not, if not equal to or exceeds the cost of living index for Newfoundland and Labrador. So I always kind of sort of try to buffer or answer some of those questions. So you're saying that it's better to live outside and I'm not saying that it's perfect. Everything is perfect in Newfoundland and Labrador. Do not let anyone say that I said that, because it's not. But when you look at the alternative, 
I'm leaving because it's cheaper elsewhere, the facts don't bear that out. Right. I'm not sure how that directly relates to the newcomer conversation. I think that's more a locally born and bred conversation that people may be asking themselves. And of course, as you know, there are vast differences between wanting to live in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, or St. John's. A lot of it will come with an established community of people from your country or your, or your home country, whether it be India, Pakistan, Japan, China, whatever the case may be. So there's a lot of differences in there. There's mobility, there's cost of travel, there's access, there's, you know, not only the size and strength of the community of your home country. So there's a lot of different things there. Weather, I mean, it's an endless yeah. list. Uh, no, oh. it, it, having that community within a community is absolutely essential. It's one of the reasons of why we, you know, sometimes it's argued that our retention rate is, is not as strong as it could be. It's actually much stronger than what some people suggest it is. But I think that, you know, that's a kind of a constant urban conversation that, you know, we our retention rate is actually quite good. Uh, in contrast or con- comparison to the rest of Atlantic Canada, it's qu- very, very good. But, but what does that right. mean? I mean, community some, within community is important. Give us some numbers. Like, for instance, I'm trying to get a number of how many international students at Memorial University stay five years after graduating. So what are our retention numbers, whether it be using two-year, five-year, ten-year windows? Well, that's a really good point because, you know, one of the things that we want to, that I'm studying and I want to have better data on from Memorial University is the retention rate of international graduates. The reality is, while Memorial University is, um, I think, a centerpiece in what it can provide in terms of opportunity for for, uh, immigration, it's actually not uh, as strong right now as what many people think it is or it could be. And I say that because... The number of international graduates who applied for, we have, we have mechanisms now to be able to, to get that on this. We had a program called Priority Skills, whereby Memorial University of Newfoundland graduates in particular fields of endeavor, such as computer science and uh, aquaculture and other things, uh, could apply for immigration status, for permanent residency, under our provincial pathways. Uh, upon graduation with or without an immediate direct job offer from the private sector. So they could come, if you graduated from Memorial in a particular field uh, which was in high demand or perceived to be in high demand, you graduated uh, and uh, you could apply for permanent residency without the otherwise normal necessity of a guaranteed job offer. Well, the number of applicants that came forward from from Memorial, from the from international graduates, was actually surprisingly quite small. Who is driving immigration in Newfoundland and Labrador? Small business. Going to tell you right now, the, the the force that's driving immigration in our province is small enterprises. Small okay. and medium-sized businesses. Uh, last one, because I'm already over time. So there's a story in the news about a nurse practitioner who lives uh, in Alaska. She bought her grandmother's house out in Elliston. Talk about the arduous process of being certified as, in this case, a nurse practitioner. First, she had to be an RN, then had to wait another possible six months before she gets licensed as a nurse practitioner. What about the healthcare professionals coming here? We've heard from a Ukrainian doctor who is 
disappointed and very frustrated with the time it's taking for her to offer her skills inside our system. So what about the nurses coming from India? I know we've been told they have very similar training and accreditation in India as they do in Canada, but bringing them here without the ability to get right to work also poses a problem on a variety of fronts, including housing, including the opportunity to put their skills to work. So what about the process as opposed to the numbers? So that's really what I wanted to dig into. Excellent, uh, you know, excellent conversation to have because we're going to Bangalore, India, for a particular reason, a purpose. It's because the education and the practical clinical studies are very, very similar, if not identical, to the studies that you would receive uh, at the uh, Center for Nursing Studies. Or, you know, they are a commonwealth standard. It's one of the reasons why who's going with us to India is the College of Nurses. It's the registrar. It's the licensing body. So it's not just the Department of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. Who will be going to uh, with us to India will be Health and Community, uh, health and community Services. Uh, the regional health authorities will all, – all four regional health authorities – We'll have representatives there in India at our at our desk, as will the licensing body. They will be working directly with the schools in India, in this particular state, in this particular city, where students go with the full intention of getting a Commonwealth quality and styled education in nursing, to become a registered nurse, and to bring those and move and bring those skills to somewhere in North America or Europe. That's why they go to these schools. And so the whole registration process will be very, very much simplified, more simplified and streamlined. And when the RHAs go, Patty, they'll not only be, and I insist on this, they'll not only go with a list of nursing vacancies that they want to have filled, but while the nursing licensing process proceeds for those nominees, they must have job offers in hand for personal care attendants, for nursing assistants, and other jobs in unfilled in Newfoundland and Labrador at hospitals and clinics throughout the province. They must have job offers in hand that are unfilled currently so that the registered nurse nominee can get a full-time job immediately which is required for permanent residency application to Canada, and they will be earning and living, uh, the, earning an income immediately to be able to support themselves and their own housing needs immediately while they go through a very streamlined process for licensing. The net result, with all of the, this team approach, with everybody on the ground knowing the jobs that they have and doing them professionally and efficiently, we will be able to get registered nurses quickly into Newfoundland and Labrador. We'll be able to, in the interim, we'll, uh, they'll have job offers of unfilled jobs in this province so that they can earn that income, earn their permanent residency, be on that track for permanent residency, and then then we have a much much better functioning healthcare system that's what the that's the dream that you know that's the that's the initiative that i brought forward and it requires everybody but in particular the regional okay. health authorities 
to make that happen. Appreciate the time. Thank you. All the best to you. You too. Bye-bye. It's Minister Jerry Byrne. Break time. When we come back, we're talking with Sid Wolanski. He's the president of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. Lillian's there to talk long-term care, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president of the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. That's Sid Wolanski. Hiya, Sid. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having us on. Um, pretty heady morning this morning, I have to tell you, with a lot of very interesting topics that sort of blend into what I'm about to talk about. Um, currently, the Coalition of Persons with uh, Disabilities, Newfoundland and Labrador, is looking for more board members. We need to fill in our ranks. Uh, just to put it out there who we are, we're a non-profit, cross-disability, cross-provincial organization. Um, and when you look at the term disability, a lot of people don't understand uh, just how encompassing it is. Um, at the current levels, we're about 125,000 people in our community in Newfoundland and Labrador, which is a quarter of the population, which in itself is a very heady number. So we're looking for more board members uh, uh, that have uh, a lens on the disability world. We're looking for people with, uh, who identify as deaf, people with learning disabilities. We're also reaching out to the colleges and uh, MUNSU to see if we, uh, they would like to join the uh, board as well. We're also looking for uh, professionals um, that can lend their uh, ideals and lenses uh, to our community. So th th right now, we don't look at who you are. Uh, we have what's, there's a new big term out there called intersectionality lens, which just means that we look at all populations, uh, no matter where you come from, LGBTQ+, um, or uh, the different uh, other communities that are out there, which are numerous. And our lens is only on the fact that you have a lens on what a disability is. And it can be anything from uh, being uh, hard of hearing, uh, lack of sight. Uh, there's also uh, intellectual disabilities as well. Um, disabilities that occur from uh, people with uh, uh, head injuries. Uh, that life impacting moment that we all go through when we get injured and it uh, turns us uh, turns our life around into something where we need help. I know that was a long intro. Well, that's okay, Sid. So I, I'll just ask this just out of curiosity. How about yeah. someone who might not identify with one disability or another, but is the parent of, or the brother of, the sister of, the grandparent of, because they would have a unique perspective that maybe folks who do not have a disability, like myself necessarily, always trying to see what's going on in the lives and the realities for folks with disabilities, the various uh, disabilities that are out there. Would that be helpful, board member? Absolutely, and that's part of the lens as well. You know, people that, um, like for instance, uh, there's a lot of people in the province that take care of disabled parents or uh, children that have uh, been born with some sort of uh, uh, intellectual issue. <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, different possibilities out there, including professionals. Anybody that wants to get involved in a board, that we call ourselves a working board because uh, the number of things that we get on a daily basis and uh, 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 there's a, oh, I'm getting tongue-tied here and I apologize. Uh, 
there's just so many different aspects of this that in one uh, quick uh, discussion, it's, it's hard to get everything involved. But we have a, you know, there's a huge community and there's a lot of uh, issues going on around it that uh, we're out there to help. And this is what we, our board will do, getting involved in different programs and uh, uh, different communities to help them out. We're looking for people, and now here's the hard part, we're looking for people on the other side of the overpass, not on the St. John's side. We're looking for people from Labrador. Uh, we're looking for people from... Uh, uh, every walk of life uh, that you can possibly think of. But we need more representation from outside uh, the Avalon. So that's specifically what we're looking for as well. Fair enough. Uh, what kind of time commitment are you looking for, Sid? Because I've been on various boards. Some of them are quarterly meetings and no big heavy workload for the board members. Other boards have been very time consuming. What sort of uh, time commitment do people need to make for your board? Okay, outside committee work. Uh, we have a, a board meeting once a month, which usually lasts about an hour, and it's in the evenings, uh, where we discuss the issues, the ongoing projects that we have ongoing, and we have a number of projects these days that are ongoing at the coalition. Uh, and if you get involved in committee, it's maybe a, a, a night here or there to, uh, to work with the subject that you're working with. Fair enough. Uh, Sid, what do people need to do? Give us some contact info uh, before we say goodbye. All right. Um, and then I'd like the opportunity just to have one last little uh, uh, push out there. If you want to, if you're interested, you can call us at 722-7011, or you can leave a uh, message or email to nancy at codnl.ca. It's N-A-N-C-Y at codnl, C-O-D-N-L dot C-A. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is an important thing, and with all everything that's going on in the province, we'd love to see more representation from all over the province. And if you have any idea that you may have something that you can help us with, by all means, reach out. So if I can just add one more thing uh, and this is a call out uh, to the government uh, to the uh, 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 government as a whole as opposed to any one person in April of 2021 uh, there was a mandate letter that went out that said uh, that we should create a advocate for persons with disabilities in Newfoundland and Labrador and so far we're still waiting so my question to the government is uh, how much longer do we have to wait Fair, fair call, and that's a question we can pose on your behalf live on this show when we get the right politician or minister on. Uh, thanks for this, Sid. Good luck with the Thank drive for much. more board members. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sid Wolanski is the president at the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. We better take a break. Lillian, Lillian and everyone in the queue, we appreciate your patience. We'll get to you ASAP. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Hi, Lillian. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Not too bad. Very frustrated this morning. What's happening? I'm calling on behalf of a really good friend of mine. Her husband is at the hospital, as we speak, having blood transfusions. And I, like, he's he's waiting to get in a, a home. And that is not working out very well. And, uh... She is, they're both having home care. They're both very sick. 
And I have tried to get a hold of a social worker this morning. I have made 10 calls and have not gotten a response to any. I have left my name and number and the reason why I'm calling, and I have yet to get a response. So what's the issue with what's the issue with getting in the home? There is simply no beds, or she has a, a specific home she wants to go to. What's what's going on? Well, it it's a it's a long story. It's a long story. Uh, they've like the social workers are working on it, and uh, the doctor did do a letter of referral or whatever, and he forgot to sign it. So that had to go back to the social worker, go back to the doctor, then go to the social worker, and then go wherever it has to go. Anyway, uh, like this has been going on now for uh, too long. And my they both have home care, uh, but my sister is using a walker. She can't get around very well at all. And uh, she's left with her husband from 2 o'clock in the day or it could be from 4 o'clock in the day till 11 o'clock the next day. And, like, there's no rhyme or reason to it, Patty. Like, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible for a woman in her condition to be left to care for her ailing husband. Let's see. Have you by chance spoken to or with anybody at Seniors NL? Uh, no. They're pretty helpful. So they might have uh, very specific contacts they can connect you with. They might have some different uh, direction they can point you in because they deal with these issues, whether it be long-term care, personal care, uh, all sorts of issues regarding seniors in the province. I've had a lot of success with them, and so I have some of the listeners that I've put on to them. I have their number if you'd like to take it. Oh, definitely, yes. So uh, are you in and around St. John's? No. Okay, so her toll-free number is 1-800-563-5599. Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to do anything right away for you, but they have been very helpful in the past because these are the things they deal with all the time. Right. He should not be sent home from that hospital today. Like, for her to have to take the responsibility of caring for him like it it's and to try like my my question is why can't social workers get back to their clients i even called the hospital where he is right now and to talk to a social worker there i was passed and this is not speaking to anyone this is just on an answering machine to call this number. Call that number. Oh, I'm out of the office. Tell do, 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 do. And then call this number. And on and on it goes. Like the system is more than broken. I understand. I hear, I hear this all the time. I would call Seniors NL. If you make mm-hmm. no headway there and you want to get back in touch with me, you can do exactly that. Okay. 
Thank you so much. I wish you well. Good luck, Lillian. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's see. One more before the news. Line number four. Jerry, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's Terry, actually. Oh, my apologies. Uh, Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you. First-time caller. Um, I'm just listening to Jerry Byrne, and I'm not going to be negative at all, but they're talking about housing for all these lovely people that are coming into our country, we'll call it, or Newfoundland, Labrador. But for Jerry Byrne to take a, a ride around Cornerbrook, specifically uh, Newfoundland, Labrador housing area, area, so the apostrophe S, because... I took a drive a little while ago, and we were part of the Newfoundland Labrador housing uh, many years ago. And I drove up there probably about two weeks ago, and I counted about 60 or 70 rows. So, okay, like there's eight in a row of apartments, barred up from top to bottom. No way in the world to get into it. I'd like to know what. Jerry Byrne and Newfoundland Labrador Housing are going to do with all these units. Now, sadly, they had a bad fire here like a couple of weeks ago. The whole thing was just wiped out flat because it wasn't built like the other places. But it'll be interesting to see what they're going to be doing with this. They just seem to be patching them up and they're just left there. Uh, Terry, so all of the units that you're talking about are all Newfoundland Labrador Housing units? Yes. Okay. Yes. We've actually asked the minister responsible direct questions about exactly how many are on the island, how many are in Labrador that are not currently occupied, what the status of renovations and plans are. Can't get real specific answers there, but that's pretty important stuff. And wherever people are in this province with housing concerns and vacancy problems, with Newfoundland Labrador housing units that are boarded up, and for some of these things, months, years on end, there's a massive problem there. So we've tried to get firm and solid answers and timelines. We're not really able to do so, but we'll give it another try. I'll tell you what, Patty. Uh, I will personally do a, a personal count and call you offline or give it to somebody there to pass it on to you this is the actual number of what I can see of okay. in the area where I live. Yeah, please do. I will. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot, Terry. I love your show. Thanks, buddy. All the best. Bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. So, two, Dave, is that where we're starting? Okay, let's go line number two. Morning, Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. A couple of quick things. The Bangalore, or Bangalore, where they're going to recruit nurses, is actually the 23rd largest city in the world, and it's got 13 million people, which is more than all the capitals of Canada combined, but it's actually, you got to take the top 19 cities in the country and add them all together and that's the population yeah and in that one state in that city there's a hundred nursing schools yeah and and the city is actually only 60 percent bigger sorry 40 percent bigger than the city of st john's which has 113,000 people yeah so, so you know you think about where they all going to live they're used to living in smaller spaces uh and when you go to a lot of, of asian countries i mean they'll have 20 people living in a house the size that we all live in. So, so 
part of I know you've called for the, the, the home sharing program. I mean, it's a great way for seniors or people who are struggling financially to uh, potentially offset some of their costs being matched up with um, an immigrant or with someone who's looking for some help with housing. So, you know, I want to echo that call because, you know, we've got lots of square footage in this province. It's just uh, been occupied by, you know, a lot of cases, just two people or three people living in a house that could, that could house a lot more than people. Fair enough. We don't necessarily, we don't necessarily have to build a whole bunch of new structures, I guess, at the point. Um, also, um, you know, shout out to to Chef Boyd in, in Gander. I'm actually in Gander today with Bev. She's doing a presentation on child abuse prevention. And um, and it's really interesting when you when you look at uh, what he's doing there and, and the, the children saying that they would rather, instead of going out to their normal fast food places and eat down healthy food, they'd rather have a turkey dinner. And, and, I, and I, I would too. And, and, you know, when you look in France, people, you know, this is not just private schools. In France, France like at the regular schools, their lunches have multiple courses. They start with a vegetable, such as a leafy lettuce salad, which, of course, probably they couldn't afford right now, but they'll have something. Cucumber, tomato salad, or even beets. Then they'll have a warm main dish, which almost always includes another veggie, like sliced roast beef or veal with mushrooms or broccoli or breaded fish with cauliflower. And that's just every day at, at school lunch. You know, I, I think I think that Chef uh, Josh is kind of starting that process, I hope, and we can get a lot of this unhealthy junk food out of our cafeterias and replace it with, with real meals. There's still a number of schools in the province that are not compliant with the food guidelines that have been set forward by the uh, the provincial government. It's just madness. Now, I don't think everyone's going to have the luxury of a Chef Josh, but, you know, even groups like Food First NL, and there's another group, uh, the name escapes me now, making big push to get not only the healthy options, but locally produced options in the province's schools and in long-term care and personal care facilities. So, yeah, that's important stuff. Absolutely. Okay. City of St. John's uh, just voted themselves raises, so the council did, and uh, that'll result because they've just signed collective agreements. Uh, that'll result in the mayor making uh, uh, almost fifteen thousand dollars a year extra by twenty twenty five. Every council an extra fifty three hundred. They also voted to pass the uh, the raises on to management, and that's actually going to uh, increase the uh, city manager's pay by twenty seven thousand dollars. And it'll also add eight more managers making that will be making. Right now, there's two managers making over two hundred thousand dollars at the city of St. John's, and there's going to be eight more. So there'll be ten of them. So that's not the sunshine list. I guess that's the. I don't know what that is. The atmosphere list. I guess when you're over two hundred k. And on average, it's going to cost around six and a half million dollars uh, plus extra pension uh, liabilities, but six and a half million dollars per year to the residents of St. John's. And of course, it, you know, these raises and stuff, they go across the other municipalities, but I know, I know that, you know, not every municipality automatically passes everything along, but, you know, for context, salt apparently is up 16% this year and insurance is up pretty dramatically. Obviously fuel costs are up. Um, now labor is up with a lot of these signed agreements and uh, new projects and maintenance are up. So, you know, up, up, up. And I don't hear it. I don't hear the city of St. John's in particular talking about, you know, being more efficient and managing our money because that's that's the money they spend. They're not spending some magic pool of money that that is sitting in their bank accounts or the, the money tree that the mayor goes out and picks every night. Um, you know, it, it's our money and the people who are struggling, especially those on fixed incomes. That's what's around the corner. All these budget consultations are really just a fancy way of saying um, we're going to increase taxes. So, you know, weigh in on it. And I encourage residents to weigh in on it because just like the boiling frog, um, those expenses are going up dramatically, and they're not managing our money as well as uh, 
we're managing our own. But, uh, but you know, they they got our hands in our pockets. And come January, you can mark it down business and um, residents of St. John's are going to see tax raises. There's no way around it. If they're not doing anything to reduce their costs, they have to balance their budget. So it's coming. There's a city councillor in the queue, as a matter of fact, and I will get to Ophelia Ravencroft to respond to your comments right after we say goodbye this morning, Tom. That's fantastic. Appreciate that. You know, because, again, a lot of times they, you hear from them, and, and I know they're all good, hardworking people. I've, I've interacted with all of them. And, however, it's the collective. When you're in a room full of people who make $180,000 a year, all the managers that are consulting and you're dealing with your your union representatives, it's you know, it's, it's – it's easy sometimes to forget that, but I know they do hear from the residents. I encourage the residents to, to bang bang harder and harder for them to look for, you know, do the vehicles that are, that are out driving around, do they need to be driving around? Do they need to be idling? Do they need to, is that project necessary? Is this expense necessary? And, and how about those pay increases? Are they really the ones that are suffering in the, in the province? Okay, my main reason for calling, um, we've got... Uh, We've got Tiff Macklin, who is the uh, head of the Bank of Canada, warning all of us that uh, we're going to have rough months ahead. Interest rates are going to keep increasing. Unemployment rate is going to go up 5%. And you compare that to the fact that uh, through the pandemic, um, our federal government employees all received raises. There's uh, 312 1,825 of them, and they cost us $60 billion, which on average is $191,000 on average per person. And they, whether they worked or not, they got paid during the pandemic, and in a lot of cases saved money because, of course, their discretionary spending was reduced so much. Um, and and they, they got 5% raises, and they have guaranteed pensions with benefits. And given the fact that you know, you keep mentioning 87% of all new jobs created in the country were were government jobs uh, during since the pandemic, this magic recovery. And uh, small, you know, Jerry Byrne alluded to the fact that small businesses were the driver of the economy and the bringing, bringing in of the immigrants. And, and the fact that that entrepreneurship in the country has declined by 7%. And, and I would argue that a lot of that is because small business owners are just struggling so much and they look over at their government uh, colleagues and they think, I'm going to go join them because a lot of small business owners have the tools to go work. And I think a lot of them may be either hanging up their their boots and retiring or maybe taking a job in the public sector. And now we have PSEC, uh, which is the Public Service Alliance of Canada, which is the federal government union saying they want uh, 14%, up to 14% annual pay raises. raises. And if they don't get them, they're going to withdraw their services. And, you know, as everybody else around them struggles, I mean, it's, it's, it's a total disconnect. And, you know, to add the irony, or irony 30,000 taxation workers have put in demands for 30% wage increases over three years. And, and there's only one place all that comes from. It either comes from borrowing, which, which obviously we're hitting a wall when it comes back and stuff, or it's got to come from us. You know, will the HST go up? Uh, will the tax rate on everybody go up? Because raising it on the top people doesn't bring in that much money. So you got to go deep to be able to get that kind of money. So you know, I, you know, these people have never missed a paycheck. They're asking for a raise, and the people who are suffering financially are the ones who have to pay for it. And, and I would argue that if if the bank of Canada really wants to address inflation, then then the government of Canada needs to look at their employees because. If you have lots of money, and if you have guaranteed income and guaranteed pensions, you're going to keep spending money. I think they need to send a message to the federal government employees 
that uh, things aren't guaranteed. Let's let's introduce a little bit of uncertainty into their worlds, and the end result will be they'll stop spending money, which ultimately, hopefully, will bring down supply, and then ultimately will bring down the prices and hopefully get inflation. You want to put you want to throw a, a wet cloth, wet blanket onto the economy. You make the federal government employees and and the contractors and the uh, consultants that that feed off our of our taxpayer money, uh, you tell them, hey, the gravy chain's over for a little bit, you're going to share in the pain. And I think that would have the desired effect as opposed to making all the people who are struggling and who are really, really worried about their futures, who don't have pensions and don't have a guarantee. And, you know, a lot of people in Canada rely on a, on a lottery win for the retirement. Yeah, that's my argument. I I put that in some form to Minister Freeland last week here on the program. You know about yeah. looking in house, and you know it's you can't be patting yourself on the back for putting job ads in the paper. I know there was probably increased demand on CRA and Service Canada and stuff, but the facts are, eighty seven percent of the jobs have been created by the public sector. That's not economic growth necessarily. I know it puts people to work and good paying jobs, but it comes at a stiff price tag. You know the federal government has borrowed seven hundred billion dollars <laughs> you know th- the contribution that makes to inflation is obviously very real and there's a variety of factors that play a role but tom i'm off to the break appreciate the time this morning take care everyone stay too. all right bye-bye all right let's take that break don't go away come back to the show let's go line number one good morning john you're on the air hello uh, uh, hello yes john hi john welcome to the show what's on your mind I'm calling that type what the preacher are what the preacher is and, and preach money in order and I was. I can bear with me because I talk on a sword sometimes I had a stroke. But just bear with me. I, no problem, go right ahead. I had a stroke, stroke back in 2019. I've preached money all my life and been preaching for about well, around 40 years, I guess. In the Northern Labrador. So when I took my stroke, I lost everything. I lost all my quarters, my uh, shrimp quarter, my crab quarter, everything I had. The government took everything back when I had a stroke and left me, left me penniless, like left me with nothing. And not, not even retire around, not even, not even do, do. Like any other fisherman in, in Canada. But in Northern Labrador, it's called a communal license. And where I want the license, I want the ground fees license, but I got no quota on my license. I got, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to have no IQ, I'm not allowed to have no crab, I'm not allowed to have no shrimp, I'm not allowed to have no turbot. Uh, I, I don't think that's fair for, for in Northern Labrador for us to preach like that. And, and the rest of Canadians get their IQs, and when they retire or they get sick or something like myself, they can fall back on their quarters and sell their quarters and retire. And all I got here in Northern Labrador is when I fell, I had my stroke in that and I couldn't work no more. Was uh, the only thing I got is social assistance, six hundred dollars a, uh, a month, I think it is, or whatever it is. It's not very much anyway. Not enough to live on, and I'm pretty um, and I lost over a hundred pounds now since the, my unemployment was cut off in the spring, so uh, I was doing pretty good now until much. My employment ran up from last year. And so now I'm on social assistance. And then 40 years in the preacher, and I don't have nothing to show up for it. And when I was in the preacher, working everywhere and preaching every summer, I was I was making a living. Yes, I was. But at the same time, with them, when I got a quota from 
from our government, was given from Ottawa, that on these lives that I may not be entitled to this quarter next year. So I could never ever go to the bank and mortgage myself a house to buy a, buy a house or to a second housing or anything when I got older, like now. So I left penniless and I wouldn't have to buy a house all my life, I wouldn't have to buy anything on my life college. I couldn't go to the bank and say, just I got income like any other Canadian citizens in the fishery. Uh, so, so John, just let me ask, why is it that you were unable to go back at the fishery? You weren't, because you had a stroke, they wouldn't let you have a quota again? I'm sorry, I didn't understand that part. When I had a stroke, yeah. the non-civic government, that's who I, I'm under, non-civic government. Okay. Okay, when I had a stroke, I was like, I don't know, I was stripped of everything because I, I had a stroke because I got sick. I mean, they took everything from me. Everything. I've got, and, and I don't have nothing now. Nothing to live on, nothing. Here I am, my, and uh, again, so long income and uh, so assistance that I can't even afford to pay the rent. And my rent, I get $800 a month. And they told me I got to pay my rent on that and feed myself, clothe myself, buy, wash myself or whatever, keep myself clean. Earn that a month. And now I'm going behind my rent. Now I got a letter from eviction to be sorted out. This week, you know, so I'm going to be homeless somewhere after this week. It's supposed to be. Now, I've been over 40 years in the fishery. I just, my question is to the minister of fisheries. Why am I treated like this and not treated like a normal Canadian? I want just, all I want, I'm from Labrador. All I want is to be a Canadian. Nothing else. Just treated like a Canadian. Not like a piece of dirt. That's my question to the Minister of Futures and, and our Prime Minister of Canada. Okay, so... Why am I treated so different than anybody else? Just so I'm clear, if it was me fishing out of St. John's Harbour and I had a medical issue, heart attack, whatever it is, and I had to step away from my enterprise for X amount of time, the general course of action would be I get my IQ back and you weren't able to? Is it because you had a stroke or is it Labrador? or I'm not, I just don't here, think I'm understanding. Here in Labrador, there's no such thing as IQ. We're not allowed to have IQ. We're not allowed to have that. Like I got a ground piece license. And the only thing I'm a ground piece license is a scout license because there's no plant here to open in Labrador, the prison. Okay. That's what, that's what DFO gave me. Fishery, you know what? But I'm not allowed to have a shrimp quarter or a crab quarter or a turbo quarter like any other Canadian citizen in Canada. So when I fall sick right now, I, I took a stroke, no fault of my own, I mean, it happened. But I never only had one stroke, I had two strokes, you know, and and, and now I'm left with nothing, penniless. Like, here I am, no retirement, nothing to fall back on, nothing, nothing, no safety, nothing. nothing. And actually, just got kicked out of the just like that because I had a stroke. So, and I was told we got to follow the DFO rules in here in Labrador, but by them legal rules, it's all that different when there is Canada or Atlantic, because I preached out over Atlantic Canada, preached in North Scotland, New Brunswick, and down, down south in PEI and stuff like that. And, and, and they're okay, they, they get some money, they get paid, they get, they get the preach every day, you got the right cue, but. Here in Labrador, no such thing. 
So why am I treated so different? I don't know. It's a fair question to ask. I would have no idea the answer, but I can try to get to the bottom of it with the Nazi vote government and or the Provincial Department of Fisheries. Is that much I can try? Yes, I would really appreciate it because... Where I had to throw up my brain, don't work that good anymore. So, you know, I, I still talk to you back time, but it don't like a, a, a lot of glitches, like a lot, a lot of, a lot of stuff information. You know, like okay, uh, I understand, John. Let me do that much and see what I can figure out. How's that? Yes, that'd be great. to appreciate it. Because right now I'm in dire straits, like, like pretty well starving. You know, like um, I'm gonna need to fall back on it. You know, gonna like, and not only that. Why did I have to, that's another question I wanted to ask, just DFO, uh, Minister of Future, whatever his name is. Why, have I done, why did I have to pay for my job every summer? Like, if I didn't pay money into this fund, they would, they would strip me with all my quota and take my quota from me and leave me nothing if I didn't pay into this fund. So why do I have to pay for a job, too? That's another question. To the Minister of Fishing and uh, Prime Minister Ken, why have I got to pay for a job and, and the white man don't have to? You know, I, I had to pay for a job just to, to make a living. Let me see what I can find out, John. I'm off to the news now, but I wish you well. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Ah, uh, yeah, we won't sneak on anyone and shortchange them a bit of time here. A quick check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there. It's been some interesting times on that particular social media platform. I haven't necessarily seen the upheaval that some people are reporting given the transfer of ownership. But anyway, you know what to do if you want to follow us along on Twitter, make suggestions, or simply have a pick at me <laughs> if that's what turns you on. Our email address is openline.fiocm.com. When we come back, we're talking about Crown Lands. Uh, Don wants to talk about the wait times at the hospital. And then Brendan Hickey, the co-owner of the Newfoundland Labrador Embassy downtown town. We'll speak what Brendan has to say after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number six. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Morning to you. Uh, listening to uh, some people there talking about Crown Lands. And they're one of the worst departments ever that I've had to deal with. I've been dealing with them since I was 17, 18 years old when my grandfather left me land. Up until today, now I'm 74 years old. And my experience with Crown Lands is anything but positive. They make decisions that, to me, they don't have the people there to make them. Uh, I don't think they got either survey or anybody there. They might have a couple of technicians or something like that making these decisions. And when they pass this law or legislation, you're not allowed to squat on Crown lands anymore. But they never made it that you can't squat on any land. People can squat on privately owned land and get ownership of it. But you can't squat on Crown Land, which I think is unconstitutional. I, I don't know if that law would ever stand up into a court if it was ever challenged. But all over the years there that I've had to dig up a lot of information that they were supposed to dig up. Like, I came from New Harbor and Trinity Bay. And uh, the Cranfords out there owned just about all the land. Well, all the land from the bridge up what you call up around the pond. There are probably about a uh, hundred acres. They own all of that because the first uh, Cranford that came there was a teacher back in the 1800s and 
he came there and he left and he came back two years later, teacher, and claimed all the land that he got from England back in the 1800s. So he lived there, raised a family, they had several businesses there, and all the land was owned uh, by them. But now the roads have been changed. The bridge originally was further up the pond. Uh, then the long bridge was made with three spans down to today's bridge. And the roads all changed. Now you got a person in Crown Land sitting down in an office that don't know nothing about the area, don't know nothing about anything, is taking grants and trying to fit it in when he don't know where the old roads were to or where, where they're to. And like the train track one time was the road. And when the trains moved in, they moved the road, the, the train track took over where the road was to. And our land was owned by the size of the railway. But then they put the road where it is today and in, in over the hill. But the thing is, is that they're looking for land in grants and that and stuff that were on the train track, which was the road at the time the grant was made, and fitting them in to the highway where other land was owned in grants. And they've got it all mixed up and tangled up. And I think that area out there has got to be one of the worst areas around uh, in Newfoundland for the mess that Crown Lands have got made. They're giving out land, uh, leasing out land, like one area there, and all grants to uh, to a Henry Pollitt. That grant is, uh, I don't know now, that, that's over 100 years old or whatever. And he turns around and gives it to people that, and they know that the grant is there, but he leases it out to somebody else that applies for it that has got to produce false documents in order to get it in the first place. And Crown Land should know better than to give them uh, these grants, but they don't look up the grants or anything else to make the people responsible for getting this land. But when they make a decision, now you try and stop it. You try and, and uh, make that decision right. Can't do it. They won't listen to you. They won't have anything to do with it. They got, like, out there, there's, there's a, a grant there now from an old fellow that's did a long time ago, Jessigan. He lived for a while with a widowed Cranford that owned a hotel and everything there and the tavern in, and an inn. Now, he only lived there for a couple of years or whatever with her. And then he moved on, but he got a grant for a piece of land that was further in the road. But they're claiming that it's out there where people lived to for 100 years before. And they wouldn't admit that it's wrong, even though it says that the piece of land is uh, a lot further away from the bridge than what this piece of land is to. Oh, he says that was a mistake. So if it don't fit their descriptions or whatever, or where they figures that it should go, oh, then somebody made an error. And they've caused a lot of problems out there in Crown Lands. And my land out there, when I got it surveyed in uh, the 60s, if I followed the old grant, it would have took in other people's land and took in the road. So we went along with the fence. But Crown Lands is telling people, no, you don't go along with the fence, you go along with the coordinates that are on the old grants, which is different technology. And then when anybody that do follow it, 
now it butts into other pieces of land, cause arguments or fights between people uh, because they're going in on other people's lands. And the whole thing out there is just in one big mess. And it's not helped by people, too, that are taking in other people's property and squatting on other people's property and trying to claim that it's crown land when it's not crown land. Uh, like I said, my family was out there for for 200 years, over 200 years now, and I always got people trying to claim the land. And uh, what my grandfather and him had, the road that he had going from the pond where he had his horses going into his farmland and his sawmill and that and everything, uh, now people are trying to claim it and saying that there's theirs or whatever or uh, crown lands and all the aerial took the photography you get all your wants, go in and bring it all into crown lands and you're hitting your head against the wall and uh, for crown lands to be putting the blame on the people on that and stuff and whatever they're the ones in there that are disorganized and don't have the people and I don't think they want to or whatever. They don't okay. look up Well, we're hearing a lot of Crown Land stories in the recent past. Well, I guess over the years that I've been sitting in this chair, we've heard the scattered call about it, but a lot of it lately. I appreciate the time. Mike, last word to you quickly before I go. Well, all that I can say is that, look, as far as I know, they need somebody in there, a surveyor or whatever. I don't think they got either surveyor there. <laughs> and we need people with the, the common sense to sit down and listen to the people. And when you show that there's a road here, now they put a new road over from it. Mm-hmm. So they can't put those grants on the new road. There's the okay. old road that you want. There is the train track. And I went in there one time with a, with a piece of land there. They were trying to plot it on the main road. That said Long Pond. Long Pond okay. was on the track. And then... Uh, I heard all that. 1921, there was a fire. And all the fences got burned, and the land was no good. Now when people went back to claim it years and years later, now where are the boundaries to? Nobody knows. So I leave it at that. There's a lot of problems, but I don't think Crown Land's got the capabilities and the people in there to do the work and do it properly. Thanks for this, Mike. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, one more before the break. Uh, Seven. Don, you're on the air. Yes, Fede. Uh, this morning, I heard the uh, executive director of the nurses' union uh, talking about the uh, uh, holding a demonstration today because the nurses are all upset in Cornerbrook. And uh, she went on to say that uh, one of the problems out was the overtime, and they uh, further claimed that it was due to the fact that there was a lot of uh, uh, people being held up on the acute care wards, couldn't get into the long-term care in Cornerbrook, even though there's uh, beds available. And uh, the, the, the problem is out there is, is that there's not enough staff. Now, we also heard from the minister a week or so ago how there's beds available at Pleasant View Towers. And uh, the problem is staff. Uh, we have 30 beds in Grand Falls uh, that are sitting vacant in long-term care. And again, the problem is staff. Now, when they use this term staff, uh, what do they mean? Now, my mother was in Pleasant View Towers for about three years, and on her floor, there was 30 beds, 15 to the right, 15 to the left. During a typical day shift, 
There was a cleaner for each side. That's two cleaners. There was four uh, personal care attendants, two on each side. There was one LPN to administer the drugs. There was the registered nurse, RN, who was the supervisor, and she had an office. And there was a part-time practical nurse who I think looked after 60 patients. She had two of these units. So when they talk about staff, are they talking about the uh, practical nurse, the RN, the LPN, or the four personal care attendants? Now, we have a big contingent going off to India to recruit uh, nurses. That's basically what I've heard. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I, I only caught a, a bit of what the minister was saying there this morning. And is, is there an objective of how many we're going to rec- recruit? And is it nurses we need? Is it LPNs we need? Is it practical nurses we need? Or is it personal care attendants? The answer is yes. Now, so do we have in priority of how many we need, which is which is the big hang-up now in all our long-term care facilities that we can't open these beds? You know, is it personal care attendants? Yes, Don. We, there's a shortage across the board. I mean, yeah, even we I, haven't. We don't know how many. <coughs> no, I don't know we're how going many. Recurse, we're going after to recruit nurses, but I mean, if it's Nurses are not going to be doing the work of personal care attendants. They won't be there very long if that's what they're stuck with. So, like, we, we've got to get our priorities of what staff we need and get our recruitments uh, placed properly. Again, we're, you know, they, they, they're going off... Uh, half-cocked trying to solve the problems instead of uh, uh, getting it in mind, getting the priorities straight of uh, what's needed. What's going to be determined success of this uh, trip to India? Is it 10? 20? 100? 200? Is there any objective? As far as I can remember, the Registered Nurses Union says there's 400 job vacancies, so I guess that would be a starting point. Well, they say 600. Or 600, yeah, right. Yeah, so, so that's, that's, now, how the union come up with that, I'm not really sure. You would think it would be the employers that would have to determine the number of uh, shortage of physicians that they would have, the, the regional health boards and, uh, and these. You know... But anyway, that's, that's 600 supposedly nurses. But, I mean, how many, uh, if, if long-term care is the problem, we can't get people out of, out of the uh, acute care into long-term care, and we can't get people out of the emergency into acute care, and now there's a backed up all the way. Is it because of personal care attendants or RNs? So we, we've got to get organized here. Point taken. I don't know the numbers and the targets being set for how many from India or how many from Ukraine or how many from anywhere in the world. Uh, I only know the vacancies as reported. I haven't heard uh, the Regional Health Authority refute any of these uh, numbers put forward by Yvette Coffee, for instance, and normally they would. So it's got to be somewhere in that ballpark. But how many do we need for nurse practitioners, licensed practical nurses, social workers, uh, personal care attendants? I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows the exact number. Given it's a bit of a moving target, I would assume. I uh, appreciate this, Don. Anything else you want to offer this morning? 
One other question I, I, I got to ask is how much is Eastern Health paying out to private uh, long-term care facilities uh, in, in St. John's while beds in, in Pleasantville are sitting empty because we don't have enough staff? Well, one is a personal care home, one is a long-term care home, so there's medical thresholds that need to be no, met well, there. No, well, let's, let's, let's just take the personal care. I understand that there's uh, a fair-sized payment being made every month for, for uh, the long-term care, and yet we have long-term care beds sitting you know, vacant. We do, and not just in Pleasantville Towers. Uh, one of the 60-bed units out in Central is also only half full. Right, only half yeah. full. The book we heard this morning has yep. got empty uh, uh, history. See if I can get some numbers to uh, chew on and maybe speak to on the program. Appreciate the time and the call, Don. All right, you're welcome. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, last break of the morning. Appreciate the patience. Brendan will hear from uh, Brendan Hickey, co-owner of the NL Embassy, right after this. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to Brendan Hickey, the co-owner down at the Embassy. Hi, Brendan. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Couldn't be better. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Good. Great. I won't keep you long. I just wanted to have a quick chat about um, something we're doing for Movember. Uh, Todd Skirving, a forward with the Newfoundland Growlers, um, he grows a pretty impressive mustache called the Scurvy. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the Growlers superfan, Paul Loader, um, designed a T-shirt based on his mustache. Um, and uh, what we're doing is we're trying to raise money uh, for the Newfoundland Labrador Prostate Cancer Support Group. So we got in touch with Caitlin Noseworthy of Saltwater Designs. And uh, between all of us, we managed to get these shirts, pumped them out pretty quick, and they are for sale at the merch store in the stadium during game days, uh, during November and probably going into December. I think it's great. We actually had Todd on the show last week to talk about that and the program he's got going uh, to recognize good work being done by youth in the community. So why'd you latch on to it, Brennan? I know you've got a direct relationship with the area, given the fact that your shop is right across the street from Mary Brown Center. But why is this an important one for you and your co-owner, buddy? Well, you know, we're always trying to get involved in these kind of community-based activities, um, and it's a big part of our business practice. And uh, Todd Skirving is a like-minded individual. He's also very active in the community. Uh, so when he approached us about uh, getting this thing off the ground, we, we didn't have to think twice about it. And um, now the T-shirts are there. They're ready to go. They're flying off the shelves so far. They're $30 T-shirt taxes in, and all the proceeds are going to get donated to charity. And I will mention that uh, Dee McDonald, the owner of the Growlers, um, just donated $5,000 himself yesterday uh, to go towards that as well. So uh, we're pretty happy with that how well it's going so far and uh yeah i just wanted to come in and, and uh, let everybody know what's going on it's destined to be a big success and i think that's fantastic i know we hear a lot of anecdotal evidence about what game nights and event nights at mary brown center means for the downtown core whether it be taxi cabs uh, bars and pubs and restaurants and the like what's a game night like for you guys because we saw some pretty strong numbers go through the turnstiles over the weekend uh, we certainly did, and we saw uh, some pretty good numbers uh, go through the pub uh, before and after the games as well. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're directly across the road. Um, so, you know, this time of the year, uh, you know, with winter coming, um, a lot of bars and restaurants uh, kind of gear down a little bit, um, you know, as we go into the tougher months. But uh, just where we are located, uh, we're kind of gearing up for a, a good season. Um, you know, the the buys are playing phenomenally, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, 
So, uh, yeah, we're just happy to be across the road and uh, to see everybody coming out supporting them. And, uh, and, you know, ultimately coming in and supporting us a little bit too, right? Yeah, 11 games into the season. Haven't had a loss in regulation as of yet. So 10-0-1, pretty impressive to say the very least. You see some of the breakdown stats about uh, uh, shots on goal and goals in the third period. Man, oh man, they're out in front of the entire league by wide margin. And, of course, the Growlers are welcoming the Maine Mariners tomorrow night for a three-game set as well at the Mary Brown Centre. So do yourself a favor. Grab a T-shirt uh, regarding Movember, Todd Skirby and his partnership with the Newfoundland Embassy, drop in for a pint, maybe a soft serve if that's your if that's your poison. And uh, I know you guys have invited me down, and I'm just such an idiot and so busy I haven't been in, but I am going to get down soon enough to say hello. God love it. You know where to find us. I do so. Thanks a lot, Brendan. Okay, thanks, Freddie. Take bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Yeah, the boys have been kind enough to invite me down for a, a gab and a sandwich or a pint or whatever. All sounds about right to me. All right, uh, good show today. Poo, busy one today. Any leftovers kicking around, David? <laughs> uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.